Well, I'd ask that you would stand for the scripture reading this morning. This, as we continue in the book of Matthew, will be in Matthew chapter 10. And I will read for us verses 16 to 23. Matthew 10, verses 16 to 23. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. You can be seated. It's a blessing to be here with you all this morning. Well, as we rejoin our study of the Gospel of Matthew, we continue with the theme of Jesus sending out his disciples. If you recall, just a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the compassion of Jesus as he looked over the scattered people of Israel, the nation of Israel, and he had compassion on their state. They were lost and leaderless. They were helpless and harassed. That those who ought to have been guiding them and caring for them were in, in fact devouring them instead. There was yet a plentiful harvest among them. Yet there were few who could bring them the words of life that they so desperately needed. And so as we looked at last week, Jesus gathered his close disciples together and commissioned them to go out as laborers in his vineyard. They would be his representatives among the people. They were given his words, the, the message of Christ that he had carried to that point, the message of the arrival of the kingdom of heaven, the message that the time was short and that the people needed now, today, to repent and believe and bear fruit of that repentance, lest the judgment find them. They were given his words, his purpose, his authority, the same authority that we have seen being revealed bit by bit throughout the gospel, the authority over death, over sickness. They would be able to go out and, and cast out demons in the name of Christ. They were to go out as Christ among the lost and the helpless. Well, this morning we are going to look at the warning that Jesus gave them of the persecution that they would face as they went out to the nation of Israel. Some of which would be faced immediately, but much of which would only be faced in the years to come. And then when we continue, Lord willing, in the following weeks, we will see Jesus explain to his disciples just why they will face this persecution. He will give them an eternal perspective to the persecution and the trials that they face in the here and now. 
There was something bigger going on than the individual disciple and the response that they received from those they went out to speak to. The division that would take place among Israel between those who would accept the Messiah of God and those who would harden themselves against him, this division was not, in fact, accidental. Jesus had a design for it, and he had a purpose through it. Those are things we'll be looking at in the weeks to come. There will be warnings throughout this section about the need to persevere. Hard times were ahead for the believers. Jesus made that clear to them. He warned them ahead of time. There will be trials. You will face extreme persecution. He gave them time to prepare themselves to determine how they would respond. Because how they responded to persecution mattered. Their responses would resonate in eternity. Those who faithfully followed Christ in the face of oppression would find great reward. But those who thought the cost was too high and turned back once again to their former way of life would face the same judgment that was soon to fall in the nation of Israel. Well, I'd ask that you join me in prayer as we prepare to approach the living God through the preaching of his word this morning. Father, we confess our need for your spirit to be active and moving within us and among us. Father, there are hard words, hard words of warning from our Savior that there are also merciful words, Lord. Help us to see the mercy in being warned. Help us to see the mercy in being told to prepare. so we might escape the ways of the wicked and the destruction that is surely coming for them. In all things, Lord, let us, even in the hard things, celebrate what Christ has done for us and take comfort and confidence that our Father in heaven knows what we will face. He knows our weakness. He knows what we need And he is infinitely able to provide above and beyond what we could ask for. Keep our hearts centered on the gospel this morning, Lord. Give us repentance for those of us who need to repent of sin in our lives. And courage for those who are weak and wavering. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, look with me again at the beginning of our passage this morning in verse 16. Jesus says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. So as Jesus describes what he's doing in the sending out of his disciples, he uses two different analogies involving animals. They were being sent out as sheep among wolves, and they were to exemplify the wisdom of serpents while yet maintaining the innocence of of doves. Well, of course, God's people being likened to sheep is nothing new for us. It's the same analogy that Jesus used just a few paragraphs before, talking about the lost of Israel who were scattered and shepherdless. It's the same 
analogy that we see in the most recognized psalm, Psalm 23, where the Lord is my shepherd. And the psalmist there carries that picture throughout the whole of the believer's life. When we think of calling someone a sheep, we often think that that is associated with their being stupid, gullible, helpless, even pathetic. But that's not how Scripture most often uses the analogy of sheep. And it certainly isn't the perspective of a faithful shepherd toward his sheep, be he human or divine. From the perspective of the faithful shepherd, the sheep are loved. They're not, they're just not designed to lead or to protect themselves. That's his job. They are a valued possession worth investing into, not a nuisance or an unwanted burden. Well, the imagery of the wolf is no mystery to us as well, either in the relationship of the wolf to the sheep or in general. We understand the threat that a wolf is, the actual animal is to the sheep. The wolves are the ones who stand waiting to devour and they bring the downfall of any sheep that they can fall into their grasp. When we think of this more as an analogy for those wolves who were among the sheep, we think of how they, they often try to mask themselves. They try to mask their faces, mask their actions, mask their words in order to be trusted by the sheep. Yet scripture gives us confidence that they will be known by their works. So Jesus was sending out those who were his beloved possession, his sheep, those who he had come to lead and to protect. He was sending them out among the wolves who would seek for their destruction. And because of that, he needed to warn them about what they were going to face. They must be wise as serpents to fulfill the mission on which Jesus was calling them. Of course, I'm probably not the only one for whom that language gives a little bit of pause. Wise as serpents. Did Jesus really tell the disciples that they must emulate something of the serpents? Going all the way back to Genesis 3, wasn't it the craftiness of the serpent that caused the downfall of man and the curse upon all of creation? And were not the Pharisees rebuked as a brood of vipers because of how they had been preying upon and destroying the people? Yet Jesus was not telling his disciples to follow in the steps of Satan or in the steps of his servants, the Pharisees. Christ's disciples needed to understand the mind and the tactics of the world. They needed to understand the wicked so that they could protect themselves from the wicked. And they were to be diligent not to fall into the sin of the wicked. They needed to balance their wisdom or their cunning with innocence. As one commentator helpfully put it, they need the cunning of snakes without the venom. Of course, there are things 
that it is not fit for Christians to even discuss, as Paul said in Ephesians 5.12, things that it is shameful even to speak of the things that the wicked do in secret. And yet, a quick glance through the Proverbs will show you that we must be aware of the tactics and the intentions of the wicked. Saul, or Solomon right routinely through the Proverbs, is warning those who will come after, warning his son, do not fall to the wicked woman. Understand her ways. Understand as she is calling you that she is trying to bring you to your death. Jesus' disciples must understand the nature of the enemy. And they must be prepared to defend against the tactics of the enemy while not falling into the same sin of the enemy. Because you are sheep in the midst of wolves, learn to understand their tricks so you can escape their bite and their defilements, maintaining your innocence. Well, this is a massive, this has massive implications for our culture. But we're only going to have time to just scratch the surface Beloved, we cannot expect to escape the defilement of our culture while we remain ignorant of its schemes. If we are not honest and diligent, we will fall to the allure of the world's crafty speech, just as the multitudes around us have already done. The hysteria around us in support of all manners of sexual perversion and confusion have not risen out of a vacuum. The sodomites and other radical perverts in this country have been diligent for decades to craftily and sneakily push themselves into every institution and segment of society. And I use those words, those strong words, those old words for these sins because I recognize that the softening of our language when we speak about sin so that it is less offensive has been part of the strategy of these radicals from the beginning to normalize and destigmatize sin. It's sort of like calling adultery an affair. It makes it sound softer, less offensive. Or abortion as the termination of a pregnancy rather than the brutal murder and slaughter of an innocent child. We cannot afford to follow their rules of how we address the sin that God calls abomination. So these sexual radicals, they hid their true agenda as they pushed their way into every crevice of society, at first just begging to be left alone to their own devices in their own places. Then they demanded more and more acceptance and acknowledgement than legal protection. And once they gained enough influence to demand the ruin of anybody who will not bend the knee to their worldview and worship the gods of their lusts and perversion. At this point in time, can anybody say, can anybody believe that they aren't in fact coming for your children? The sodomites and other sexual deviants have been making that claim for years that they're not coming after your children. And yet they have done that from the beginning. And so they must, because by their lifestyle, they have made themselves practically sterile. 
They cannot reproduce of their own means, so they must steal from others. And they were very forward-thinking, very crafty, very diligent. They learned the playbook from the secularists and the humanists before them. Because the Christians in this country had time and again before that refused to see what was happening and had been trained to keep their religion to themselves. So they remained silent as the government became gay and the schools became gay and their sports and entertainment became gay and as many of their so-called churches became gay. So, beloved, we must heed the words of Christ. We must learn to be wise as serpents. We cannot bury our head in the sand and not see what is going on with the agendas that are being pushed in every sphere of our society. And this is particularly pertinent to this text because this is the realm from which our persecution is arising and is going to arise as we move forward. Well, Jesus continued in in verses 17 and 18. He said, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you'll be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Part of having the wisdom of serpents is that we need to realize how we ought to deal differently with different kinds of people. Of course, that doesn't track at all well with our society's call not to discriminate based on any basis whatsoever. Yet we know instinctually that it is not only impossible, but incredibly foolish not to discriminate. There is no contradiction between the call to respect everybody as created in the image of God, to love our neighbor as ourselves, and the call to exercise prudence in how we deal with different kinds of people. And in case you have any doubts, when I'm talking different kinds of people, I am not talking about the shades of their skin. Wisdom teaches us to discriminate. We don't treat everybody the same. And we don't give everybody the same benefit of the doubt. Part of how we discern how we ought to discriminate is to understand other people's intentions and motives toward us. Do these other people, do they desire our good or our ruin? Do they want our greater holiness or do they want us to indulge in wickedness? Do they love Christ and his kingdom or are they enemies of God? That makes all the difference in the world with how we interact with somebody, with how we open ourselves up to them, by how vulnerable we make ourselves before them. The benefit of the doubt that we offer to other believers, those who love the same Savior that we love and who are feebly crawling along towards greater holiness in the same way that we are, the benefit of the doubt that we give them is not something that we offer to the others randomly in the world. For a professing believer, if their actions prove their words false, then we treat them as an unbeliever. 
But as they are walking a Christian life, we allow them even to hurt us. We allow them opportunity. We allow them time and again. We give them grace. We give them mercy. We forgive them 70 times seven. We bear with one another in the church, patiently enduring long-sufferingly. But we deal the opposite with somebody who does not claim to follow Christ. For them, we must assume a posture of extreme discretion and care. And only after their actions prove that they are trustworthy, do we give them room in our life in those places that they have been found worthy. It is true, there are plenty of people who do not claim the name of Christ that are very trustworthy in different areas of life. But those are things that have to be earned, not in the same way that we give benefit of the doubt to those who claim the name of Christ. So as Jesus sent out his disciples, he warned them about what they were going to face, and he told them to beware of men. Jesus knew that there were going to be some that would believe the message of the disciples. There would be others who were dismissive or indifferent to the message. And then there would be some who would actively oppose them and would seek with every energy that they had to undermine the messengers of the gospel and to destroy them, to cancel them in our modern vernacular. Jesus knew that attacks were gonna come upon his disciples from every direction. And they would often come from those places where they might, they must, might be most vulnerable and unsuspecting. Beloved, the wicked are crafty after their own way. If they can't get someone through legal means, they might try to ruin their reputation among their own people. Or they might seek to use cultural pressure to ruin their ability to interact in society or even make a living. Even so, those who are against Christ and therefore stand against Christ's followers by their persecution of Christians, they ultimately work against their own objectives. Meaning that when they try to destroy the gospel, when they try to destroy Jesus' disciples, they end up giving them opportunity to proclaim the wonder of the gospel, both by how they respond to that persecution, by the words they speak, and the actions of how they live that out. In the case of this first century in the New Testament, the persecution of the elect within Israel, at the hands of apostate Israel, in that the Gentiles, who were used by some as a weapon wielded against others, these same Gentiles were exposed to the gospel. As people were brought before governors and kings and the Gentiles, seeds were planted that would bear fruit as the gospel went forth to the Gentiles in the years ahead. Well, of course, the expectation of being dragged before religious and civil leaders to make a defense for your faith would be enough to cause even the best of us some anxiety. 
And so Jesus, being kind and, a kind and gracious master, encouraged his disciples. Read in verse 19 and 20. When, you deliver, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. Or what, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Well, what a blessed comfort this is for the fearful Christian who is aware that at any moment they might be thrust into the situation where they have to give an account for their faith. This brings to mind the words of Christ during the Sermon on the Mount concerning anxiousness. In that passage, if you recall, Jesus told his disciples that they were not to fear about their food or their clothing, the very things that the Gentiles obsessed themselves over. They were not to fear about those things because God knew their need and God was able to care for their need. Well, this promise that Jesus gives in our passage this morning carries that same assurance as one commentator put it, the right words to speak in that situation are as important as food and clothing. And God can be trusted to deal with both because he, he is your Father. So God's Spirit gives wisdom and confidence to respond faithfully when those times come. He can and he will bring to mind those things that you have read and studied and meditated upon before in his word. Even when the stress of the situation and the attacks of the enemies seek to drive them far from our minds. Beloved, we do not need to live our lives in constant fear of being exposed as a Christian or asked to give some kind of reason for why we believe what we believe. In fact, to live in fear for that would be faithless. And as we'll see next week, would be to deny Christ before men. Well, turn with me, if you like, to 1 Peter, 13, or 1 Peter 3, 13 through 16. Uh, you can keep that place in Matthew as well. We'll be coming back. So Hebrews, James, and then 1 Peter 3, 13 through 16. Remember, Peter both knew the message of Christ that we are studying this morning and experienced many of these kinds of situations in his own life. And he wrote this, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even then you should suffer for righteousness' sake, so you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. And so we find a similar kind of balance here that we found in the Sermon on the Mount. To keep from being anxious, we neither obsess over our needs, present or future, and yet we do not ignore them. We labor diligently as long as it is today 
And we trust that God will bless the labor of our hands and he will sovereignly provide when what we can provide and offer is not enough. Or he will sovereignly provide when we face obstacles that we could not have anticipated. Of course, Jesus' warning to be aware of men was not limited to those who were strangers. It included warnings about those who, apart from Christ, might have every, you might have every reason to trust and let yourself be vulnerable toward. Read in verses 21 and 22. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and put them to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Often, the greatest attacks that one faces come from those who have the greatest ability to wound them. Those against whom their defenses have no reason to be raised. The unnatural betrayal of family against family points to the radical shift that follows when one accepts the gospel call of Christ and lives their life as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. When you change who you are, rather when God's spirit wrought this change within you, when you change how you think and when you talk and, and how you act is changed, along with who you prioritize in your life, those who are most invested in what you used to be often resist the change the greatest because the threat to what is happening in you is the greatest loss to them. There are times when even family will stand against you for your faith in Christ. There are times when family might even deliver over somebody that they love to the authorities, thinking that they are doing what is best for them or best for society as a whole. We will see an increase in those kind of events, family members will be reported by family members. There will be parents who are reported for not being willing to try and advance some kind of mutilation of their children because of some sexual confusion. It is already happening. In any case, underneath it all, even family will turn against family because their hatred of Christ outweighs the love they formerly had for father, son, mother, daughter, brother, or sister. And this had been promised long ago. Micah 7, 5, and 6. Put no trust in a neighbor. Have no confidence in a friend. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For the son treats his father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. The gospel does in fact bring division. And at the end of this warning that Jesus gave his disciples that family will betray family, he told them that the one who endures to the end will be saved. 
So Jesus both warned his disciples about what was to come, giving them time to be ready and prepared for what they would face, and he warned them of what it would mean if they gave in to the pressure, what it would mean if they turned away from following him. Because salvation does not belong to the one who starts the race. Salvation belongs to the one who finishes the race. Hard times were indeed before his disciples, yet, no matter how hard those times would get, eternity was on the line. Unless we be unclear about the meaning of Jesus' words here, we can just skip down a few more verses in Matthew 10 and feel the greater weight of the warning of Christ in verses 32 and 33. There Jesus says, So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. Beloved, the need for the Christian to endure in the face of life's trials and persecutions that they will face because of the name of Christ, this is not an isolated teaching in Scripture. There is no hope of salvation for those who fall away, for those who give in to the pressure of the world and deny Christ. James 1.12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Revelation 2.7, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Or a few verses later in 10 and 11, do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So just as in the parable of the seeds and the different soil, in that parable Jesus revealed that it was only the seed in the good soil, the seed that actually bore fruit, that represented somebody who was actually saved, so now are we to understand that salvation is limited to those who endure in their faith until the end. And just to be clear, we are not talking in this about momentary failure. We're not talking about a season of backsliding. We are talking about apostasy. There's a big difference between falling into sin and denying Christ. Big difference between falling and stumbling and turning away. Those who do not remain in the faith Those who walk away prove themselves to be false converts. They are false disciples. And yet, while that can and should give us some comfort when we stumble or when others stumble, that you can fall, you can have times of backsliding and still be brought to repentance, we must realize that often apostasy simply follows a season of backsliding as sin just becomes more and more comfortable and easier and easier and the things of Christ seem more and more outrageous and demanding. 
So it is right that a believer ought to fear and to repent in trembling when they find themselves in sin or when they find themselves comfortable with their sin. Well, the call to endure as well as the warning for everybody who does not was pressing. It was very pressing as Jesus talked to his disciples because this persecution was guaranteed. It wasn't just theoretical. It was going to happen and soon. And it was pressing because history was moving rapidly towards a great decisive moment. Jesus said, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will have not gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. So the shortness of time dictates how Christians are to show wisdom with the little time that they are given. The Christians, the disciples that Jesus was sending out among Israel, didn't have time to be a punching bag for those who wanted to attack them. They didn't have time to beat their head against the wall with those who didn't want to listen or didn't care. Recall things Jesus had said earlier on. Do not give to dogs what is holy. Do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn and attack you. Or what he said just a little bit before our passage this morning. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your word, shake off the dust from your feet and leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. There was no time for the disciples to remain somewhere where they were being attacked or ignored. They had to go as far and wide among the cities of Israel as they possibly could to share the message of the arrival of the kingdom of God, to proclaim that word, that repentance was necessary, that fruit was necessary, that they needed to turn away from the false teaching of their fathers and back towards the teaching of the patriarchs, which recognized, anticipated, and celebrated the Christ. Jesus would soon be coming in judgment. That same generation was going to see it. The nation of Israel would face judgment for her idolatry and for rejecting God's son. The church would not continue to be fully bound to to the folly of ethnic Israel. The church made up of Jew and Gentile would show herself to be the true Israel, truly built upon the foundation of the law, the prophets, and the patriarchs. And the gospel would go out to the nations as the kingdom of God moved forward to manifest the reign of Christ across the whole world. And this isn't the only time that Jesus talked about the quickness with which he would visit Israel after he ascended to heaven. Matthew 16, 27 and 28. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Or Matthew 24, 32 through 34. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and put out its leaves, you know that summer is near. 
So also when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. While this might not be the way that many of us were taught in the past, when Jesus said that not all the cities in Israel will be reached before he came, or when he said that some listening to him would not die until they saw him coming in his kingdom, or that this generation he was addressing would witness the end of the age, when he said these things, he meant it. We don't have to torture the meaning of the word generation to make it something that can span thousands of years. Well, admittedly, there is a lot of discussion among Christians about how we should understand verse 23, in particular the aspect of all the, visit all the cities in Israel before the Son of Man comes. So what does it mean? Well, there are a few different interpretations that I just want to just briefly touch on. The first one is that Jesus was just sending his disciples out a little bit ahead of himself. Like he was giving them a, a, a head start of, of, a, of a days or weeks or months. Kind of like saying is, you won't be able to visit all the towns in this region before I catch up with you. I don't think that interpretation has any merit. The kind of persecution that Jesus promised for his disciples simply did not occur during that time period. And the, son, the designation of Christ as the Son of Man is too closely tied with kingdom expectations that demand something more than just that brief delay in them being together. A second interpretation that Jesus was speaking about his ascension into heaven after his death and resurrection. So there the coming of the Son of Man was not to his disciples, but to his throne in heaven. And while this would make sense of a change in focus from the Jews to the nations after Matthew 28, 18, before his ascension, and while Jesus did receive persecution and was killed, the church had not yet at that point faced the kind of promised persecution and agony that Jesus said they would find. And the timing is yet too quick to allow for what Jesus was describing. A third interpretation that Jesus was talking about his second coming, that we are yet awaiting some time in the future from us. And certainly under that understanding, there has been time for all of these types of persecution to be poured out upon Christ's church. Though the given context from a Jewish perspective, including the synagogues, does not make much sense with the church becoming predominantly Gentile over the centuries. In that view, the whole church age is but a pause in the prophetic or redemptive timeline as though it was a parenthesis or a side project that God deals with for a moment before he gets back to his real people, Israel. This is in fact, a, in recent decades, a pretty popular way of understanding this and similar passages. And it's likely how some of us were taught. Even so... That understanding, I believe, does damage to the text. I believe it does damage to the right understanding of God's one people. And ultimately, I believe it does damaging to our understanding of the gospel as a whole. So the other option, which I am arguing for today, is that Jesus' promised coming 
was when he came in judgment to Israel, though not physically, as had been promised for her apostasy. When that Christ came in judgment in 70 AD, using the Roman government as his tool to bring judgment on his people for their sin, for their rejection, for their crucifying of the Son of God. Understanding that Jesus spoke of that event as a form of his visiting the people, as a separate event from his second coming that we are yet looking for and longing for, that allows us to make sense of this passage and other passages like it. Passages that promise that the people listening to Christ, hearing his words, standing before him, would witness the events that otherwise we would still have not seen some 2,000 years later. And during the time between the ascension of Christ and the destruction of Jerusalem, we do in fact see Christians suffering the kind of persecutions that were promised to them here. We see that throughout the pages of Acts. You can do a quick survey through Acts of time and again disciples being thrown into prison being brought before council. See, Stephen being stoned to death. See, James dying, being killed during the time of Acts. See, Paul going from an oppressor of the church who went house to house to try and smoke out believers to bring them before the council. See, Paul himself being brought before the council, being brought before governors, being brought before kings, proclaiming the gospel, being a witness to the Gentiles as he was in chains. By then the gospel had gone out to the Gentiles as promised, Yet before 70 AD, the nation of Israel was still at the epicenter of Christianity as it had mercifully been given time so that the fullness of the elect within Israel would hear the gospel. They would hear the gospel message, the words of life being brought to them by Christ's disciples as they, as they tirelessly went out among the people seeking to tell everyone of what Christ had done, that Christ was now reigning on his throne before the promised judgment fell upon them. Well, beloved, these warnings are first and foremost for that generation. These warnings first and foremost belong to that generation standing as first-hand witnesses before Christ. The persecutions that were promised were very specific to those which a Jew might expect and did receive in the first century if they professed faith in Christ. Remembering that adds an extra layer to the promise that the Jews would be dragged before Gentiles by other Jews. Their own people would use the hated enemy of Rome as a tool to try and punish any of their own who changed course, who dared stray from the traditions of their fathers. In much the same way that the elders in Israel used Rome as a tool to crucify their Messiah. 
The timeliness of Christ coming in judgment was specific to the first century, specifically the first century within Israel. There was no time for delay. There was no time to waste on, on those who refused to listen. There was a harvest, a plentiful harvest among Israel. And Christ would not lose a single one whom he had been given by the Father. So we see the timeliness of these words of Christ, the expectation of persecution and the motivation that his disciples must go out and must be diligent and must be quick. So yes, these warnings first and foremost belong to that generation. But that doesn't mean that they have nothing to offer to us. We too need to understand the minds and the tactics of the world. As a church, we need to wake up to get our heads out of the sand to see what the enemy is doing and what they hope to accomplish. That's not believing in conspiracy theories to see the wicked machinations of the world, to realize how they are working to be able to break down any barriers that are presently in place to keep them from more actively persecuting the church. This is happening. They want to shut down the message of the gospel. They want to shut down the free speech that allows us to boldly and freely proclaim God's word, to say what God has told us to say. We have seen multiple nations who a decade ago we would have thought had similar freedoms that we had, arresting pastor after pastor because they found ways around laws and protections to persecute the truth. Those who hate our king hate everybody who serves him. There is no one who is neutral. Everyone and everything that does not bend the knee to Christ when it comes to our faith in Christ, when it comes to the the proclamation of the gospel will be against you. There are many who would be family or friend that are made your enemy on account of the gospel. Beloved, we can't truly love others and serve them if we choose to remain ignorant about what makes them tick. If we, refuse, if we choose to remain ignorant about how they are influenced by what things motivate them and drive them. Today, as in the, in the first century, as throughout church history, Christians are attacked from every angle. Yet we too should not be anxious about how we will respond when we are falsely accused. We shouldn't be anxious about what we would do if we were put in front of a camera as an object of derision because we would not kiss the golden calf or because we would not burn incense to Caesar. We cannot anticipate every challenge that we will face, yet God has promised to give us what we need when we need it. And yet, we must today determine that we will stand strong and faithful no matter what the cost. Because the moment of stress, the moment of trial, the moment of pressure is not the time to decide if following Christ is worth it. 
You must decide today what you are willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel. In contrast to this early church in the first century, we have no idea in what generation Christ is going to return. But even for us, the time remains far too short for for us to beat our heads against the wall when we face resistance or persecution. We need to know and be discerning about when we ought to shake the dust off of our feet and move on. And often that will be costly. Some of us have experienced difficulty with family and friends for the stances that we have taken as we have tried to be faithful to the commands of Christ. And Christians throughout history have been attacked most fiercely by their families when they turn away from the traditions of their fathers toward Christ. All around the world, this is still found with murderous consequence. Yesterday, I just did a a quick online search for Christians who have been killed by their families because of their faith. A whole slew of headlines come across. Just a few. Across Africa, converts are abused, disowned, and murdered by their families for their Christian faith. Christian evangelists in India burned to death by his own family. Christians in Afghanistan face routine torture, persecution from family groups. Hindu relatives suspected of killing Christian in India were three Christian women killed by their Muslim family members in separate incidents over a two-day period. So the kind of persecution that Jesus promised his disciples they would face is still found today in varying degrees around the world. And we have, thanks to the establishment of this nation, largely upon the law of God, regardless of what the false history would want to tell you, we have, because of that, enjoyed a reprieve in this land. Yet greater persecution is coming and is even now here. We are increasingly being viewed as the enemy of culture, the enemy of the state, and a pariah to society. No less than those who came before us, we too must endure in the faith until the end if we would be saved. And so I call on you to determine here and now that you will stand. Don't wait to see what's coming. Don't wait to see how bad it hurts before you decide that you will stand strong. Do whatever it takes to plant your feet firmly. If that means that you need to cut something out of your life, then spare nothing. If that means you need to take out a false foundation in your life and replace it with the rock that is Christ, then do not delay. The temptation to turn away will come. If you have not yet faced it, you will face the temptation to turn away, the temptation to walk away, to turn your back, the temptation to say, this is too hard. I don't want to struggle like this. I want that that, that calm, that easy life that my neighbor has. I don't want to suffer anymore. That temptation will come. And you cannot await for the time of that temptation to decide whether or not you will stand. Today is the day to be aware. It is the day to be diligent. And it is the day to determine that you will stand for Christ no matter what. 
Father, these are heavy words. Yet they are merciful and good and true. Father, we do continue to pray for pray to the Lord of the harvest that you would send out laborers, that you would send us out to boldly proclaim your gospel, to live faithfully through your gospel, to have marriages that faithfully represent the gospel, to have homes that showcase the wonder of the gospel. Father, thank you for warning us about trials that will come. Thank you for the testimony of the countless faithful martyrs that have gone before us, that have suffered and even died to remain faithful. May their faith encourage our faith as we trust and cling to the same Lord that they professed. Pray all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.